This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Splann. Thank you for listening. Today's topic will be discussing the wide variety of conditions and symptoms that pelvic floor physical therapy helps to treat. We want to educate both physicians and the general population during this podcast so you know what is good people to be referred for physical therapy. Today, I speak with pelvic therapist, Sari Stahl. Sari attended Mount Montana State University and graduated with her Bachelor's of Science Exercise Physiology, followed by her Doctorate of Physical Therapy from the University of Montana in 2008. She specializes in incontinence, women's health, and is also certified strength and conditioning specialist. Sari is currently working in Billing Heights, Montana for Mountainland Physical Therapy. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Madison. So our discussion today is going to talk about pelvic health conditions across gender and age. So to start off, I just want everybody out there to know pelvic health encompasses men, women, children, and transgender population. This is not exclusionary to age or gender within this specialty, which I think is kind of one of the first big misconceptions is everybody thinks women's health. No, it's not just for females, it's for males, it's for um, all genders, as well as throughout the age range from five when we're having problems potty training all the way to 95, you know, going through menopause, going through childbearing years, um, going through aging in the, the male spectrum with, with prostate issues. So just kind of want to get that kind of out of the, out of the open. And what we're going to maybe start with is talk about conditions that affect everybody, male, females alike, then we'll kind of go down the spectrum to maybe more female, more male, and then kind of dive into those more specialty areas like transgender and pediatrics. So to start off, Sari, will you kind of talk about our bread and butter, right? I feel like the majority of our patients that we see are coming in for either urinary incontinence, urinary urgency, or prolapse dysfunctions. Can you give our listeners a little bit more information on maybe what those are, what those symptoms are like, and the different interventions that physical therapists use to treat these? Great. Sounds like a good starting point. Um, When it comes to the pelvic uh, floor system, it's really only like having a hammock of two tissue papers, three, probably three when we're 15 and young and healthy. And then as we age and we um, have babies or go through menopause or have surgeries or prostate surgeries, those thin. And then as we get weaker in general, they thin even more. And um, when muscles are smaller, they're obviously not as strong to stop leaking. So that would be kind of stress incontinence. Um, And it happens for various reasons. It can happen after even a total hip replacement for both men and women. It can happen after a prostatectomy, um, after childbirth, while pregnant, because the extra weight on the pelvic floor. Um, And actually research has shown women aging between 18 and 23, they're in, in college and not of childbirth, um, I think it was 60 some percent of them were leaking with exertion and coughing and sneezing. So it's obviously something that needs to be addressed throughout the age ranges and for children as well. 
Um, sometimes there's just a neurological signal that didn't quite get finished on the training and they're having some leaking issues. Um, so we treat, I've, I've treated people from age four to 100 for incontinence. Um, and I have found that the 100-year-olds react just as well as the four-year-olds and the 25-year-olds. Um, the difference is that a 100-year-old person isn't wanting to get back to running and jumping, so it's probably even easier to retrain them. And general population and a lot of physicians still tell people, just do kegels. This is part of being a woman, or that's what's going to fix leaking. Kegels are... Uh, pretty inefficient and ineffective at solving incontinence because it's a voluntary contraction of a muscle group that we don't use voluntarily. Um, and to be just very honest and frank about the only time that we'll use it voluntarily is if a woman says, or a man, I'm going to squeeze before I cough so that I don't leak or faking an orgasm. Those would be the two different times that we use it in that fashion that we voluntarily contract it. So if we strengthen only with kegels, um, it's kind of like walking around and contracting your bicep every once in a while and hoping to get a bigger bicep. It's not going to get a functional change and it's not retraining the muscle when it should contract and how much. But that muscle group of muscles are expected to co-activate with some of our other muscles. Um, most of them are hip muscles, but one of them is one of our abdominal muscles. So physical therapy should really focus around retraining the contraction amplitude and duration and timing with those muscles so that we don't leak when we cough and sneeze or squat or lift something. Um, so that's kind of how we tackle stress incontinence. When it comes to urge that when I have to go, I just have to get there right away. That's a neurologic signal issue. And um, I find that with teaching very specific calming techniques, uh, that kind of resolves within two to four weeks. And for stress incontinence as well, four weeks is kind of the gold standard. Um, unless someone's wanting to get to back to high end sports, we obviously have to strengthen it further. Um, so we've kind of the research has found that when people did kegels for, I think it was six weeks, um, 60 some percent of women regain full continence. And when we did um, the kind of re-education with the other muscles that make it activate, in three and a half weeks, 80 some percent of people had recovered full continence. So obviously um, if you come across anybody that says, oh, just do Kegels, you can educate them. There's so much more that therapy can do and in a much better pace and full recovery than Kegels go see your public health therapist. So I think the similar idea too, same with those prolapse patients. So if you're a woman or a male out there and you feel like your insides are falling out, if you feel like your vagina is caving in and you don't know up from down, or if you feel like you have a bowel movement and you feel like your intestines are kind of hanging out of your anus at the end, those are symptoms of a prolapse. Um, other symptoms are heaviness in the pelvic region, even back pain. Your symptoms will be worse later in the day or with more gravity dependent exercises like running or gardening, heavy housework, those can definitely be causes of prolapse and symptoms that you might be feeling. And similar interventions like Sari had mentioned would be the exact type of intervention that you'd be doing with pelvic floor physical therapy. And one comment too about stress incontinence, I feel like a lot of women are told, oh, this is just 
what happens after you have children. And I want to tell you, I've had women in my clinic that have had seven children and never had a problem with stress incontinence. I think the analogy I tell people is right. Like back pain is super common, not normal incontinence, very common, not normal. And so I think we really need to be aware of that um, misconception that after you have kids, your pelvic floor, you're just going to have to wear a panty liner all the time. It's not true. If you do pelvic floor physical therapy and you do it right, you are going to see really good improvements in regards to your leakage frequency, duration, um, and be able to live a pad-free life. So definitely seek out a pelvic floor therapist if you're having any of this urinary incontinence, urgency sensations, or that prolapse symptom for sure. So kind of moving along now, we've kind of done the urinary tract. Sari, will you maybe talk more about the GI tract and how pelvic floor physical therapy helps with constipation, fecal incontinence, IBS symptoms? Yes, that's a great topic. Um, A lot of people have kind of abdominal pain syndromes, and some of that can be from things like endometriosis, but a lot of times it's from the GI system, and it doesn't take much to help that GI system if we get the right kind of superfoods prescribed for a person to help the right transit of feces. Um, And yeah, there's a lot of diagnoses that there's slow transit ones, and um, we can even help those along. You know, a lot of people have issues with intestines contracting. Um, They're kind of like a peristalsis. They're just not doing their job at squeezing the feces through there. And we can get the right food through there. We can teach them techniques that a person can use themselves to massage, to get that through to the rectum. There's just a lot of things that can be done for the, um, the whole GI system to help that along. And I think that a lot of people that have those issues also end up with prolapses and um, hemorrhoids and things from having to push so hard or wait on the toilet so long, both men and women alike on that. So um, be sure to, you know, just reach out and see if a pelvic therapist near you kind of helps with those types of things. Most of it's revolved around nutrition, uh, self-massage techniques, Toileting positions are a major thing that we can teach depending on what's happening. There's just a lot of ways to help the motility of feces to get through the intestines at the right rate. What are kind of some of your thoughts, Madison? Yeah, I I do think all of those techniques are really great. Another reason sometimes people struggle, constipation starts, and then we overhold and our pelvic floor gets a higher resting tone, and then we get what's called dyssynergy where then when the body thinks it's pushing it's actually squeezing and a lot of times people will say oh my feces is is little little droplets where it's like the pelvic floor is relaxing contracting relaxing contracting unable to get like a full void or if your stool looks like a snake um, you might have that problem as well because that sphincter is not able to completely relax to give you that nice more bulky formed stool um I also think, you know, constipation is one of the leading cause of urinary incontinence in our kiddos, right? Um, And so they generally say when it comes to urinary incontinence with kids, you have to treat the constipation before you're going to make any gains in the incontinence realm. Um, And I think with kids, a lot of it, you know, we're trying to get you off those laxatives. First and foremost, the body gets so, so used to that regulation by um, a pharmacologic agent rather than its natural options with natural fibers. And 
water. Um, so I know my perspective is trying to get them off any form of laxative as soon as possible. Um, I like going the Benefiber route more, water, um, just more natural options. Increasing just dietary fiber on a daily basis is really important. Magnesium is very helpful as well. Nice natural option. So yeah, I think the biggest thing with constipation is really education. It's the the biggest importance with all of pelvic floor physical therapy, really. And I think the nice thing is you'll get... Um, Google can give you lots of great options out there, but from a physical therapy standpoint, when we really know where you're at on that Bristol stool chart, which is awesome, gives you like our poop potty chart, we can really help to titrate you one way or the other. I have had so many patients come in and they are taking the wrong fiber. They're going like a Metamucil insoluble fiber route rather than our soluble Benefiber route and just educating them there. I've seen massive changes in just a week in regards to stool consistency and frequency by just altering their dietary. It's, it's been really good. Um, but yeah, getting them in the clinic, getting them in a toileting position, having biofeedback units on them to see if they're actually bearing down gently or if they're bearing down so hard that they're increasing too much pressure in their pelvic floor is really eye-opening. Um, so those are kind of the routes that I take for those different interventions. I will give away one tidbit that I share with everybody in the way of dietary fiber. The, a lot of the man-made supplements that we have are not the same as getting it from food. And, you know, everybody thinks of fiber as well, I'll eat more oats and grains, but if we don't pair that with a ton of water, it actually kind of has the opposite effect where it even bulks the stool up more, making it even more hard to pass if it's constipation. So one of the best forms of fiber that we have on this earth is a pear. It's a wet fiber that's easily digested and very soluble. Um, so it can help with both constipation or diarrhea to get the bowel movement to move through the intestines at the right rate that we pull enough fluid from it, but not too much. Um, so I always just tell my people eat a pear every morning for breakfast. And that one's just hands down a given. Then there's tons of other foods that we kind of pick and choose from what Madison was saying. And um, it's like, like you said, within a week, people are usually off of the supplement forms of fiber and just getting it from the right foods that their body needs. Absolutely. And kind of going on the opposite route there, right? If we're having fecal incontinence, a lot of times all fine patients are having fecal incontinence because their stool is not bulked, right? It's a lot harder for that sphincter to remain nice and tight and closed when it's liquid compared to a nice big bulky stool. And so even getting patients that have fecal incontinence on more of a a stool bulking like a psyllium or metamucil can be very, very helpful to improve their ability of their sphincter to actually maintain that good continence. And then similar interventions for fecal incontinence, like Sari had talked about earlier, um, we go through very similar strengthening um, protocols for fecal incontinence as we do for urinary incontinence and urgency sensations. Are there any other interventions, Sari, that you do for fecal incontinence that might be different than what you spoke about earlier? Oh, I kind of follow the same lines with pelvic floor strengthening and dietary changes. Um, like you said, bulking it up so that it's not a liquid that's flowing out of them. And then also retraining the pelvic floor. There's a lot of sphincter disorders out there and we can't necessarily always fix the sphincter. Um, we can make it better at its ability to hold. So kind of the way around that is to make sure the bowel movement is the right consistency so they can hold it in. Great. 
Perfect. Well, moving right along then, another condition that affects everybody alike is SI joint dysfunction. I think a lot of times people will just go to, you know, your run-of-the-mill physical therapist, which is great, but pelvic therapists do have more education in this body region and can specialize in treatment within this disorder. So, Sari, what are kind of your clinical pearls for this treatment, as well as what are the common symptoms that patients come to you that make you think, oh, this is SI joint? Yeah, so I think a lot of people kind of point to a a line along the inside part of their buttocks and they say, man, it just really always aches here. Or when I stand up from sitting, it's hard to get upright and it's hard for the first few steps after that. Um, It hurts when I land jumping. Sometimes walking feels better, but then at some point it doesn't. Um, sitting is definitely an irritant. So road trips and things like that, lifting and carrying can be hard. And I think another thing that's out there in a lot of different exercise classes, whether it be yoga, Pilates, or a general class, um, a lot of times coaches will tell people to tuck their butt under before they lift. And I just find that that really causes even more SI joint dysfunction as well as put people at risk for disc herniations in the back. So I get a lot of people have been part of exercise classes and it started kind of after they initiated that class. So those are kind of the classic signs that I hear, but it's definitely um, a deep, boring pain that's an ache all at the same time. And then there can be some sharp shooting pains as well. Um, And those shooting pains are kind of related with the muscles that hold on for dear life to try to stabilize the situation and then guard to help out, but it just ends up increasing pain in the long run. Um, You know, I just think it's important to retrain postural awareness, get the sacrum moving correctly. A lot of times it's truly stuck in a position and it's that position where we're kind of tucked under. Um, So strengthening the hip muscles, the core, the stability, getting the the sacrum moving correctly or whatever joints above or below that aren't moving, uh, fixing gait patterns, because the way we walk, it's every step of every day that's injuring us. And if we don't fix that, you continue to re-injure yourself. And there's a lot of forces that go through that SI joint when we're on one leg, especially. And, you know, any part of the body, we can make it as simplistic as we want or complex. But I guarantee you, if you go to a pelvic health therapist versus a Um, you know, an orthopedic PT, the pelvic health therapist truly understands all the forces and what muscles help stabilize that right down to the pelvic floor to helping to stabilize. So, um, you know, I've seen some great therapists do great things with the sacrum. And I've also seen some, you know, I've even seen PTs give cues to tuck the butt under before you lift this up. Um, So I I would encourage you to see a public health therapist over a general PT if you can. If not, the general PT knows enough that they can muddle through that with you. Um, What are kind of some of your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think the SI joint, some other symptoms that I'll hear patients say is I feel like I have a leg that feels longer than another one. Um, Like getting dressed, like lifting one leg at a time can be hard, as well as getting in and out of a car. I think those are the three other like symptoms that I hear quite often with patients. And this especially is really... if there's an instability, they'll say yes. those types of ones. Exactly. Yep. And so, and this is generally our pregnant population um, are going to have more instability within their SI joint because that awesome 
you know, relaxing is a lot of flank, right? Relaxing actually peaks at 10 weeks. It's honestly progesterone that you can blame for that SI joint instability throughout pregnancy. Um, but I find that and piriformis syndrome, they play very close together, which is our sitting pain and our butt pain. And, you know, it'll shoot down the back of the leg, but generally doesn't go past the knee. Um, and I find they react really good to different soft tissue mobilization techniques. Um, if you have a good therapist that's certified in ASEM, Graston, or dry needling, they can affect those regions specifically. Um, and then, of course, correcting any instability patterns or rotations within that pelvic innominate is super important as well. And if they're prone to rotation, teaching them how to do that on their own at home and how to assess if they're out of alignment. But obviously, the goal of therapy is to get them stable enough to where they don't need to continue to do those different manipulations on themselves because they will stay stable. Um, and the research I've read shows transverse abdominis and obliques are one of the most important muscle groups for for stability in the SI joint. So really gaining rotation with exercises. I'll do a lot of different PNF patterns like chops and lifts, um, different Russian twist techniques to really uh, get the obliques activating as well in a dynamic rotational transverse plane. I feel like a lot of SI joint dysfunction occurs because we're doing too much frontal sagittal plane exercises and we really need to engage that transverse plane as well. Rotation is core on that one too. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And kind of along this whole core strengthening area, a lot of women and men out there suffer from a rectus diastasis, right? So that's where our core muscles are separating. Um, and same idea here, we want to really be strengthening those transverse abdominis to begin with, adding in the obliques turning off the rectus abdominis so it doesn't further that separation. But I think, again, with this diagnosis, a lot of people always think female. That is very, very false. There are many men that have a diastasis. And the, the main symptom of that is when you go to sit up, you just see a bulge in your abdomen. It kind of looks like an alien baby, depending on what's going on. So the men that have this are definitely the more of those kind of pot belly presentations. Um, so it's been like a slow progressional separation as weight gain has occurred in that specific location compared to women with childbearing. It just happens very quickly and so it's more noticeable um, but I definitely will do a whole return to core strengthening protocol for diastasis with my male patients that are having low back pain because obviously that force transfer is not happening if there's no connection going between that linea alba and so starting to go through and strengthen those interventions um, you know there's been some really awesome research coming out of our um, neuroelectrical stimulation section of the APTA um, I went to one of their talks at one of our combined sections meetings in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago, and they talked about actually doing um, NMES kind of or similar Russian protocol to the rectus abdominis prior to going through exercises in the gym so that we have contracted those muscles in an um, isometric manner. So they're not shortening or lengthening. And then we're able to go through oblique and transverse without getting that rectus wanting to activate because we've now over fatigued it. Um, there is also a study about using kinesio tape and doing an X on the abdomen with the center of the X at the greatest separation, pulling top uh, bottom to top with that with about 75% stretch. Um, so we definitely do both of those interventions at our clinic. And if it's a patient that's really sitting around a one finger for a while, we'll teach them how to do the taping themselves, have them 
continue with that check in once a month and just see how it's going. Um, but that tape we have found to be super effective at giving the brain that cue to activate the core as well as promote that connection. We're trying to get them to conjoin in the middle again. Um, so that's kind of what we do for diastasis and common like signs and symptoms. I will see with that. Um, what do you have to say about those different interventions and what you might do for those patients too? Yeah, just bouncing off what you said that um, a steady progression because of it separating, that's an activity that's too hard. So a lot of patient education about, okay, this is the stage you're at. You're strong enough to move one leg at a time. So what kind of exercises would be left out of that? Anything that you're moving two legs and, you know, just uh, really giving the patient the education where they're at and how much they can stabilize that and then progressing them along that path until they're doing all of their typical activities without it separating. Um, and it's important to know that even if it's a large diastasis, it can heal quite nicely. And even if it's one finger separated and it's not getting better than that, um, if they can stabilize it during activity, it's still a safe activity. That's the main thing and take home point that it's not the end of the world if it's still separated some. Um, and I have met some people that they are high-end athletes and it's important to them to have that closure there um, to be able to do their sport. And for them in the end, no matter how much we strengthen, there was still that instability and their body just couldn't heal that. So they, it's okay to opt for the surgical repair of it too. Just making sure though, that you did all the interventions that you can, otherwise you're going to have that most likely reopen and be a problem in the future. Yeah, I do want to, yeah, the point of it being wide is key. I think a lot of people don't realize, like, even at four fingers, it can heal fairly well. I mean, I treated a woman age 60, so 30 some years after childbearing at four fingers, and we got her less than one. And so it's totally doable um, for male and females alike that physical therapy, pelvic floor physical therapy will definitely help to heal that diastasis going on. Okay, so now we kind of have a couple areas that continue to affect both male and female. We have pudendal neuralgia and coccyx dysfunction. They can kind of go hand in hand. They can also be separate. Um, so, Sari, maybe tell us a little bit about signs and symptoms patients have with pudendal neuralgia to start with, and then your different treatment approaches. Yeah, so in general, um, pudendal neuralgia is a, is a term that they won't apply to someone unless they've gone through a series of injections and tests to make sure that the pudendal nerve is being entrapped in a very specific canal. It's called the Alcox canal. Um, but regardless, if you have symptoms of it, I think we can generalize that that's what we would diagnose it as even without these injections and going through all the testing. But um, there's kind of two, two variations. One is where the anterior area of the pudendal nerve is more affected and one is the rectal branch. Um, so when the rectal branch is affected, it's, uh, it's much harder to get rid of the pain completely. We can improve it and we can make sure that bowel health is happening so that bowel movements are better. But I have found that the rectal branch is much harder to decompress and help out. But kind of those symptoms of I can it hurts so much to have a bowel movement against my sphincter and I can hardly get it out. I have to plan my whole day around when I'm going to have my bowel movement and hopefully be in my own home for that. And, you know, they do a little bit better if it's a very soft one because it ends out 
kind of coming out like a pencil thick. And that's because that sphincter cannot relax and let that out because the pedental nerve is so activated. Um, so that's, that's a really, really tough one and highly affects someone's stay. And then that anterior branch um, on males, it's kind of affected a lot when they're um, you know, kind of the telltale things like, oh, I I, I'm a bicyclist and sitting on that saddle, I'm now having uh, numbness in my scrotum and in my penis um, and pain starts. That's kind of the typical things we hear for males. For females, um, they say, you know, pain during intercourse, I just can't relax. It's so intense or it, it, it feels like, um, you know, an insertion there hitting a brick wall and I just have pain all the time along my labia, my vulva. Um, and it can be very intense. And then it gets to a point that even having seams on underwear or pants are severely irritating any, anything touching even the labia. Um, hopefully we catch these folks beforehand because once they're kind of stuck in that pain cycle, then comes the spasming and the guarding in the pelvic floor, and um, that creates even more pain. Intervention-wise, um, you know, we kind of talked about for the rectal branch, branch helping bowel movements and um, GI health. Uh, the other thing that we really focus on, on is decompressing the pedendal nerve. I've met a lot of people that had a surgery, more so females, um, where it was a vaginal entrance. And so their legs were in the stirrups and kind of bent at this certain angle that tends to kind of irritate the canal where that nerve goes. So if we can free up um, some muscles, kind of some, there's a ligament on that canal and hip range and nerve mobility, as well as decompressing it with some soft tissue work and connective tissue work. There's usually a lot of adhesions compressing it. Uh, we'll see great benefits in that. And I've met some women that and men that pedental neuralgia did resolve. And I would say a good portion of them um, for that anterior branch of it, it was at least very minimal and intermittent instead of all the time. Every person I've met with the rectal branch has had much more difficulty in recovery and it takes longer and they tend to need kind of um, intermittent therapy like they'll go a year or two and they feel that pain kind of creeping back up and they say okay it's time for a little pick me up and help me out to decompress again um, and they can still leave lead great lives um, others really struggle so this this diagnosis is a tougher one there's um, also a surgery to decompress that canal. And then unfortunately, it just does not have a very good success rate. It's really quite poor. It's one of the poorest ones of the surgeries that I'm aware of. Um, and, you know, I, I've met with surgeons who perform this and they say they kind of, they just open up that canal by sticking their finger in it and pressing on all those structures and stretching them out and breaking up any adhesions. And since they have the person opened up anyways, they'll do it regardless if they see a compression or not there. So um, it's, not, it's not a favorable surgery. It, for some people, it did decrease pain. For most people, it kept them about the same. And for some, it actually increased pain and dysfunction. So um, I, would, I would definitely try other options before you, you do that. And you know, also even different therapists, we all have strengths and weaknesses in the pelvic health realm. So if you went to one and they gave you, you know, some results, 
say, hey, how about I try another one and see if they have more interventions? Because this is a very tough diagnosis. That's very fair. I even had a patient with pretty significant neuralgia that resolved once she stopped taking her birth control. So it was very much hormone based, which was very interesting as well. But yeah, I would say you gave a very good kind of brief overview of pudendal neuralgia and what, you know, those symptoms and different interventions would look like. So moving along, what would you do? Well, what, what are symptoms of coccyx dysfunction and how do you treat this? Yeah, so most, most of the folks we come across, come across with coccygeal dysfunction, um, a lot of them had a really hard fall, even in their childhood, and they had a lot of pain with it. And it, maybe came and went. And then, you know, as we aged or had babies or um, did more activities, different activities, it kind of flared it back up. So a fall is definitely a major one. Um, SI joint dysfunction kind of goes along with coccygeal issues. Um, and, you know, I would say we see this more often in females just because our ligaments are different and our pelvis has different angles to it that puts different forces through the coccyx. But it, it happens in both genders. Um, and it's kind of that, oh man, I have sitting pain. Sometimes it hurts when I have a bowel movement because that coccyx is right there by the rectum. You know, sometimes it's displaced, sometimes it's fractured. Um, childbirth is kind of hard on this one. And then we have a lot of torsional issues where it's just stuck in a rotated position. Um, the coccyx can become rotated or dysfunctional because of pelvic floor issues. So it's important to clear the pelvic floor for any guarding, spasming, whatever you may want to call it. Um, clear the SI joint for any of dysfunction because some of the rotation can actually be happening up there. And more often than not, I find that there's a lot of scar tissue and dense tissue along the coccyx. And I kind of relate that to a fall that was so long ago that the body may do for a while. Um, so those would kind of be the telltale symptoms. I would say sitting, some people say after a while of walking, it becomes a problem too. Um, intervention wise, clearing all those other areas and treating them first, working on kind of the ligament, the support system and scar tissue along it, and then correcting the position with mobilizations. Um, I've had decent success with just externally mobilizing it. There's also um, a way to mobilize the coccyx uh, with one finger inserted rectally and um, kind of holding on to the coccyx while you uh, manipulate it or mobilize it. Um, but we don't have great outcomes with that if we haven't addressed the other tissues that are damaged or fibrotic along it. So we kind of look at the whole picture and fix all of the variables that play a role. Is that kind of how you address it too, Madison? Yeah, definitely. I'll address it both internally and externally as well. I am an A-STEM certified therapist, so I'm able to do A-STEM kind of deep in through those glutes, right, where it's going to attach onto the different ligaments of the coccyx, as well as in internal through vaginal, pelvic floor, rectal. But I agree, you got you to gotta fix the reason first before you can get to the joint, right? We want to make sure that there's no point in mobilizing the joint if the muscles are just going to pull it back into its resting position because of different tone going on as well. Well, so yeah, I think you, you hit that great. There's nothing much different that I would do there either. Um, okay. So we've kind of talked a little bit about abdominal pain. Um, so maybe let's talk a little bit specifically with endometriosis and women and how you kind of approach these individuals with therapy. 
So <laughs> we're talking about a lot of tough diagnoses today. Endometriosis isn't something that disappears. And, you know, some women think because they had the surgery, wait, they cleaned it up and I should be good, right? But the pain came back a few years later. Well, you can't get rid of all of these endometrial cells that are replicating where they should not be. Um, this, these are microscopic cells. The surgeons can go after the areas that they have grown into masses and scrape those off, but not always because they tend to steer clear of the bladder because they don't want to create a cut in the bladder. And um, in general, if there's one cell left, it'll keep replicating. So, um, you know, years can go by and then the pain comes back. Uh, so it's important to have great connective tissue mobility throughout the viscera and the abdomen to help um, with motion and movement. And that will also help the pain. And then you break up that pain spasm pain cycle, because let's face it, when we're in pain, that fetal position is our go-to position. And that's um, just using the belly muscles that creates more spasming in the same area. And um, in almost all of the gals that have uh, endometriosis, endometriosis and pain associated with it, they also have um, iliopsoas muscle guarding spasming and that muscle is a deep spine muscle and hip muscle so it goes from you know the front of the spine down through the pelvis into the the femur for the thigh um so when we're in that kind of flexion position to help relieve pain it can get short it can be just holding on for dear life and a lot of women will say well that's just my endometriosis pain or that's just my ovarian pain i have an ovary that's always angry well, that muscle's deep in there and we don't have normal nerve receptors in our abdomen like we have for other areas of our body. So we're not real sure what the pain is until we start kind of feeling around. And a lot of times if we release all of those muscles, the pain that we think of as endometrial pain will go away or at least be significantly lessened. So um, I guess I kind of go about it in a way of making sure GI health is normal because intestinal pain can mimic some of the endometrial, endometriosis pain, helping the viscera move well and break up any adhesions, helping the pain spasm pain cycle to get rid of that guarding, lots of patient education, stretches, um, re-educating the core on how to activate and when, because that gets pretty significantly disturbed in this one. And even with endometriosis, you can be living a pretty much pain-free life with maybe some flares here and there related to hormones and such like that. Uh, what are some of your experiences there? I definitely think a lot of women with endometriosis tend to suffer from pretty significant pelvic pain with intercourse. So that's an, an area of, of concern that we address. A lot of these women have really, really bad, painful, heavy, heavy bleeding periods as well. So that's kind of a, a pretty... Yeah, that's a big sign for endometriosis. And I have so many women that'll ask me, you know, what caught, well, not so much the endometriosis, but like patients that come in with chronic pelvic pain and pain with intercourse are like, what caused this? And I have found that a lot of these women have dysmenorrhea, that very painful, heavy periods. And I tell them more than likely during those, during your menses, your pelvic floor is going into protection mode because of the pain in your cervix and your cramping. So now that your pelvic floor has gone into protection mode the muscles have shortened they've tightened they've created knots so to speak and so that 
was the kind of starting of the cascade for your pelvic pain. And then when you have intercourse, then that hurts or it's not even achievable because your muscles have become so shortened that now you have to go through different um, dilator training and stretching of the pelvic floor muscles in order to achieve um, penile penetration if that is your goal. And, um, you know, for some women, it can be fairly quick. It can be, here's some dilators, here's how you use them. Um, or for some women, they have a whole hip intense response where the hips will kind of clam up and tighten in. And so it might be a three or four or five, six month process in order to achieve penile penetration. It all just depends on the symptoms and um, how tight the pelvic floor is with those individuals that I have found. And um, you know, I think really finding the right surgeon for you for endometriosis is really important too, because there's two major different types of surgeries. There's ablation where they are burning it. And then there is excision, which they are cutting it down to the root as best as they know possible. Um, depending on where you live and the expertise in your region, you may only have one person and they may only know ablation. So they have shown that excision endometrial surgery has decreased the likelihood of it returning. Um, I believe it was like a 10 year look back by it's, it's only a 10% chance with excision compared to ablation is much higher, closer to 30% at a 10 year look back. So, um, I think also knowing your surgeon, knowing your options out there, understanding what your, your doctor performs compared to other ones out there, knowing their outcomes. You know, I would just say, make sure with your physician, if you're going to go um, the laparoscopy option to try and remove those different masses, understand your surgeon, understand their approach. And so you are making the right decision for your body. Um, I think that's kind of the biggest things I would add into endometriosis. And you cued my brain on one other thing. Speaking of the very heavy menses, um, a lot of the people who go through endometriosis also have ovarian cysts. That kind of just seems to go hand in hand. Those can be very painful until they burst and then they're painful for a few days after, but not the same once there's that pressure relief. So like you said, having a great surgeon that can identify, well, you have some cysts that are pretty regular and bursting. Maybe it is time to take this ovary out. Um, weigh all of your options and make sure it's the right one for you. Absolutely. And then I kind of started moving towards um, treatment and um, symptoms of intercourse pain. Would you like to touch more on that since I kind of breezed over it? Yeah, I think one of the major take-home points of any of the you know, abdomen to pelvic floor issues that we're talking about today is they often go hand in hand. And so you don't treat one area without screening out the other area. And often we have to treat all areas to make a difference. So I think you've heard both Madison and myself speak of, well, you know, we have to clear out that pelvic floor for spasming and it just, it, you know, it co-activates with other muscles. So if you're a woman that clenches your inner thighs really tight, you know, you're squeezing in because you're in pain, those muscles make the pelvic floor co-activate with them. That's part of that closure. So we don't leak. Um, and same thing with the transverse abdominis. That's one of our ab muscles. And when we're clinched there, it's telling pelvic floor, turn on with me. And pretty soon the whole body thinks that it's supposed to be on that much all the time instead of coming back to a resting tone. And, you know, anytime a muscle is upset, angry, guarded, spasmed, the idea is we have to get it back down to resting tone. 
and it's no different for the pelvic floor in this whole cycle between the abdomen and the glutes and the SI joint and the pelvic floor. This almost always goes hand in hand that we have to work on all of these areas and no different than soft tissue work for, you know, a knot in your upper trap or in your glutes. We release those muscle groups with soft tissue interventions. Um, they're performed vaginally so we can get to those muscles and they have great outcomes. And Madison has mentioned that sometimes it's a matter of oh, I treated this person a month and look at how far they've come and they're back to normal. And other times, you know, I've treated pelvic pain syndromes for a year and they just steadily improve. Um, and certainly when, when we're talking about this, we can't leave out the, um, you know, sexual abuse, uh, rape, the, there's also a mental component to this and a fear, even without sexual abuse or rape or molestation. Um, when, when someone's, smashed your hand with a hammer, we don't leave our hand there to be smashed again. We have a pullback reflex. We know it's going to hurt. We don't want that again. So if penetration is painful, we don't want that again. And we guard even more and we don't want to do it. Um, the take home here is that we not only have to train the body um, what's normal, but we also have to get the brain on board to realize, wow, okay, that didn't hurt with this size of dilator, I'm getting better. And pretty soon it doesn't hurt. And the person has to remind their brain before intercourse, okay, this is going to feel good now. I don't need a tense up. Um, it's, it's a huge neuro system driving this. And there's a lot of moving parts to that. So it's all about down-regulating that pelvic floor to get normal tone. And once we get that down-regulated, we even have some women and men that say, now I'm leaking because they were, maybe they were clinching it. So they wouldn't leak initially. We don't, sometimes we know what started that clinching of the muscles. And sometimes we don't, but that's fine because after the pelvic floor tone is normal, then we integrate um, correcting all the movement patterns of it, or maybe not right away, but as it normalizes, we do this. And then we have good strength there that can hold while urinating, but we also have the ability to relax. And that's kind of where we focus our interventions. Um, a lot of quieting techniques, um, abdominal breathing, hand warming, relaxation, head to toe. Um, Madison mentioned the dilator training that that works really great for certain people. Um, there's, there's a lot of interventions here. Just keep an open mind. Um, Madison, even she has more experience with working with counselors, with couples to create that trust and that the rest of what goes along with the mental aspect. And she can kind of note on that. Yeah, I definitely think it's really important if um, you've been having pelvic pain for a long time and it's been affecting your relationship, coinciding pelvic physical therapy with sex psychology or a social worker, um, couples therapy is really important because it is now turned in from or transitioned from a musculoskeletal condition to now a psychological condition. And we need to train both of those in order to understand and kind of peel back all of the layers of the onion to get that holistic approach as well. Um, and definitely make sure you seek out the right therapist as well. There's so many out there and they all have their different specialties um, from, you know, just a clinical therapist to a social worker to psychologist. There's so many different options out there. Um, and telehealth is really great right now too. And so you have that option if there's not a great provider near you to still be able to talk to somebody via telehealth, which is really awesome as well.
Um, and, you know, this intercourse pain is also kind of the root of what we treat with our transgender population. A lot of them have had their surgery um, going from male to female, and now they're trying to get that entire width and depth of their vagina. And so, you know, a lot of the times the surgeons will kind of hand them the dilators, give them the protocol sheet and say, here you go. Um I can tell you from experience that doesn't always work the greatest. You're going through different stretching techniques. Um, you're, you have a significant wound that is healing. And so seeking out a public floor therapist to help you along that transition has been super important that I have found um, for patients, whether it's they're coming to me two months out or if they're coming to me two years out um, because maybe they just didn't quite get it. So understand if you're in that population that public floor therapy can totally help you transition through those different levels of the dilator training as well as your, if you're going um, from female to male and you're having some tightness and some other pelvic pain just from your surgery. Um, a lot of our transgender populations don't actually run the major risk of urinary incontinence. If anything, it might happen more commonly going from um, female to male, but I have yet to find it from male to female. But um, again, if that is a symptom, pelvic floor therapy can help you as well. But generally what we find in that population is we're working through the dilator training, the healing process, any scar tissue development, um, granulation tissue, we can help to reabsorb back into the system as well. So um, I know another thing that we treat as well that people maybe don't know is bladder pain syndrome or um, more commonly known as interstitial cystitis. Um, interstitial cystitis generally has symptoms of either Hunter's lesions or no Hunter's lesions. Hunter's lesions are these kind of sores that come up in the inner lining of the bladder that cause pain. Um, these patients will have symptoms of, you know, significant urgency, limited ability to stretch the bladder, um, pain withholding the bladder, pelvic pain overall in general. Um, and so those individuals will go through very similar interventions that we've already talked about in regards to downregulating both the abdomen, the pelvic floor, um, abdominal viscera, kind of that relaxation technique that Sari just touched on. Um, it can be nice to know if you actually have the Hunter's lesions or not, because there are different installations that urologists can do where they will um, put a fluid within your bladder. It might be heparin, it might be lidocaine to try and numb and heal those sores from the insides as well. Um, but generally what I see with this interstitial cystitis bladder pain patients is lower abdominal pain, um, hypertonicity within the pelvic floor, specifically on um, the adjacent tissues to the bladder. And so we're we're just kind of working on down-regulating those, those pain symptoms with the different interventions that we kind of talked about for abdominal pain and endometriosis. Um, do you have anything else on that topic, Sari? Yeah, just uh, bouncing off of that, I would say the other intervention would be um, getting on the right diet that, you know, your food in, fluid intake is not something that burns our tissues because those lesions, you know, if, if you put lemon on a open lesion on your arm, that's very painful. So managing your diet to give them a chance to heal, especially, you know, leading into um, getting the installations during, after you have to give it a chance to heal. And unfortunately it's in the bladder and it's a, it's a tough place to get tissues to heal because we all know we have acids, we have bases, we have all sorts of things flowing through there. Um, so, you know, monitoring diet is really important in that case too. 
Great. So to kind of finish up our conversation, we kind of talk about prostatitis, prostatectomy with our male population and how pelvic floor physical therapy can help with this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would say with prostatitis and prostatectomy, um, we see a couple different outcomes. Mostly we see incontinence um, and you know, we've already talked about some interventions for that. And for males, it's no different. It's the same pelvic floor, same muscles. They're a little bit differently oriented. And males typically have um, stronger pelvic floors because they do not have a vaginal opening in the middle of the muscles. They just have kind of an opening for the urethra to run through. So after a prostatectomy, we've, we've changed a little bit of anatomy. We've We've taken some things out and there's a healing process and there's incisions, there's things to heal there. Um, most men will be able to recover full continence. There are some situations that, especially with cancers, that uh, the surgeon had had to damage a nerve to get that cancer out of there. So um, in those cases, we can still improve things, um, but they're a little bit tougher and erectile dysfunction can go along with that as well because there's been nerve damage. So be aware of that. Um, And I would say the other thing too is I I have seen post-prostatectomy because the position of the legs and the length of a surgery, maybe it was a little bit more complicated. Um, Pedendal neuralgia can become an outcome of that. So um, just, you know, be aware of the symptoms in the earlier, you mention them to a doctor and say, Hey, I've heard about this for therapy. Um, early prevention is the best early intervention is better and waiting and seeing is the least favorable. So, um, you know, we've talked about the interventions and certainly we would take care of all of the soft tissues and decompress the nerve and work on nerve mobilizations when there's a pain syndrome there post prostatectomy and you know help treat the pelvic floor so we can regain that strength anything to add to that I know I've just had a couple surgeons or urologists kind of talk to me like well the research shows after a year like most of them will gain continence I'm like right but like wouldn't you like that to happen a lot sooner than a year (laughs) because pelvic therapists can definitely speed that process up and I don't know if any of you out there have ever bought pads they are not cheap. So, you know, cutting that consumption level down, both from an environmental and a fiscal idea is really important as well. So just know that polyfluor therapy will speed up your recovery exponentially faster than the wait and see method. That's a good point. I also think there's the I, I can have men that have minimal leaking, but when you had them any of our outcome scoring to see how much the leaking is affecting them, we have women with large leaks everywhere they go, and they'll rate themselves lower than a man with, you know, a small leak here and there. It, in our society, it's not okay for men to leak. This is not normal. You're right. It's not normal. Um, but you know, make sure to reach out and get that help, even if it feels embarrassing, because it's not a male condition, it is a male condition, and it should be treated. And, you know, decreasing your pad use is great. And yep, I've had the men come in and say, well, my surgeon sent me, but he said, eventually, it'll take care of itself in a year. And the reason why they chose to come to therapy was purely because they worked like at the refinery, and they didn't want to have to wear pads around guys and manage them in outhouses. And, things where they're, they're heavy duty workers, they're climbing ladders, they're running shovels, they're doing some hard work. And 
they don't want to deal with it at work. They want to be able to do all of their job without having to pack around pads and, or even depends when it's a, you know, a bigger leak. So, yep, your physician can tell you that, or the research can tell you that, but the research will also tell you that we can take care of it within a month to two months instead of a year. And you can be going to work and feeling your normal strength and manliness in front of your coworkers and for yourself and your own health um, much quicker. Absolutely. So Sari, if listeners want more information, or what would you say? Okay, hold on, cut that. I'm going to restart it, Nikki. Got it. Okay. okay. So Sari, if nothing else, what do you hope people take away from this podcast? I think the pearls from it are that there are so many providers out there and speak up, get the help you need, have your own autonomy. Um, there's, there's just so much knowledge and research and interventions out there to, to help through these diagnoses. We work very closely with physicians. You know, I am not afraid to call a physician and say, you know, we're, we're seeing improvements, but we've hit a wall. What else do we have that we can, you know, co-treat with this? Get a whole team of people on your side to help you through all of these very tough diagnoses. Um, it is people can make things sound simple, but bottom line, the human body is a very different system than what we have in our brain and it's complex get the people that can help you get to the right outcome the best outcome for your diagnosis and don't be afraid to speak up to your physicians or even just call a pt clinic and you know do you, do you can you help me with this i hear this is a thing um you know abdominal pain vaginal pain, penile pain, leaking, sacrum, coccyx, low back, all of this plays a role. Reach out, get help. That is the pearl. Perfect. Well, thank you for listening. If you'd like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Sari for coming on the show today. And Sari, if listeners want more information or would like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? Uh, my email is Sari, which is spelled S-A-R-I at mlrehab.com. And my phone number here at our clinic in Billings is 406-206-6888. We'd love to hear from you and get you some help. Well, thank you for listening. Save the date for May 13th, 14th, 2022 for Mountainland is hosting the first annual Pelvic Health Summit in Park City, Utah. Please tune in to next month's episode with Dr. Stephen Gange on TERP and Urolift procedures for prostate dysfunction. And remember to subscribe to this podcast to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. Also, if you wanted more information on one of the individual topics we talked about in today's um most of them have already been talked about in depth in earlier podcasts as well as our male dysfunctions will be up and coming so stay tuned and thanks this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, 
published or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.